0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story. Back what in was the my inspiration daughter. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Perhaps I used to be almost dependent Dear B. on a
1: voice. In a poem I want to talk to you, <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation starts.
0: Hello and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University Writing Community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lobowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Sarah Frisch will read her short story River Blindness. Sarah Frisch is a former Wallace Stegner Fellow and current Jones Lecturer at Stanford University. Her work has been published in the Paris Review, the VQR, and the New England Review. She has won a Pushcart Prize and been a finalist for the National Magazine Award. She is a 2017 winner of an Elizabeth George Foundation grant for fiction. She holds an MFA in fiction from Washington University in St. Louis. You can read more of Sarah Frisch's work at sarahfrisch.com.
1: The letter detailing the news of Rachel's grandfather's death contained three impossible details. His body had been found in a cave in the Volta region near the border of Togo. He had been stabbed, and he was with a prostitute when he died. The night the letter arrived, in honor of him perhaps, although he would have disapproved, Rachel and her grandmother ate dinner in the backyard of a local restaurant. White lights were strung along the fence, and a high life pumped from the speaker's Rachel's grandmother ordered a brandy and leaned back in her chair. "'Here we are,' she said. "'He was a hypocrite,' Rachel said. "'Yes,' her grandmother said, he was. "'But they should let it go. She talked about hunting hogs when she was a child in Texas, how when they got angry you could hear them popping their jaws, wetting their cutters, when they would have been better off running. "'I'm saying, of course, you're upset, but there's no use sharpening your teeth on the dead. Think about your future. Choose your battles wisely.' A few days later, Rachel took her grandmother's advice and picked a fight with a classmate. The girl, popular and impossibly well-educated, was a Honduran national who had lived all over the world, the daughter of a wealthy agricultural commodities trader. In social studies, she talked about how she felt like she had never really belonged anywhere. Rachel, who had woken up miserable and hating everything, and by mid-morning was feeling even worse, said, Don't luxury resorts look the same in every country? "'Did they teach you that in Bible school?' the girl snapped. "'After class, Rachel cornered her and tried to slug her in the throat. "'A few years before, she had watched a man laid flat on the road by a punch to the neck, "'raising a puff of dust as he hit the ground, but her punch was only a light knuckle. "'The girl swore and jumped back. "'No wonder nobody likes you,' she said. "'They had just finished eating dinner at their new house, "'a small cement block structure in Osu, when the school phoned to report Rachel's sins.' "'What's the matter with you?' her grandmother said after hanging up. "'This is your one shot at college in the States.' She was frowning, but she seemed distracted, as she always did while waiting for her new boyfriend, Roger, to stop by. During the two years her husband had been missing, she had begun to act as if he were gone for good, shutting down the mission he had founded in the rural north, moving Rachel down to Accra, and enrolling her in a private American high school.' Rachel wanted to say that even in towns in the north where children ran from her because they thought she was a ghost, she belonged more freely than at this school. Instead, she lied. I have a boyfriend now. That's great, said her grandmother, looking surprised and pleased. I didn't have to run after him like you run after Roger, Rachel said. Ah, said her grandmother, with a small internal smile that made Rachel's stomach turn. But Roger runs after me. As if summoned, Roger appeared at the back door. Ladies, he said. He was a balding white USAID officer in his late 40s, almost 20 years younger than Rachel's grandmother. Around Rachel, he was nervous and irritating, asking dozens of questions about her social life or standing over her while she did her homework or pestering her for ideas for weekend trips they might all take together. I'm going for a walk, Rachel said. Now, Roger asked, looking a little hurt. Is that safe? She can handle herself, Rachel's grandmother said. Outside the night was hot. Chop bars did a brisk trade and late diners ate at folding tables or sitting on crates. Rachel turned onto a deserted side street lined with cement houses. She killed a mosquito on her arm and it bled. A malaria carrier? Was Roger right that she shouldn't be out after dark? In the last couple of years, two dozen women had been raped and murdered in the streets of Accra. People said a woman who was silly enough to walk alone when she could take a trotro, silly enough to go out at night when she'd go out during the day, was asking for trouble. The murdered women were all Ghanaians, and Rachel was an Imbruni. She wondered if this fact had informed her grandmother's apparent indifference to her walking out alone. But she didn't go back home. She wandered the neighborhood, looking for Gabriel, the boy who had moved into her head— as if he didn't live all the way across the city and stay home after dark on the nights he wasn't sitting in his father's church, praying. For much of his life, Rachel's grandfather was a Texan Jew, son of the Reform rabbi in Galveston. He worked as a hydraulic engineer, his wife as a social studies teacher. They married young and a decade later had one daughter. In 1985, when she was 19, she and her boyfriend left their 10-month-old baby at home with her parents and went to a party. On the way home, they were killed in a car crash. Killed by a drunk driver, Rachel's grandfather would say, not killed with your father in a car crash. Not your father was driving drunk. The death of his daughter destroyed him. When Rachel turned two, her grandfather decided to leave behind the relativity and liberalism of his father's Judaism and settle in the moral certainty of evangelical Christianity. His wife followed him to the new religion. Somewhat reluctantly, Rachel now suspected and then to Ghana, where they established a ministry in a small town a dozen kilometers outside the northern capital of Tamale. They lived there peacefully enough. Her grandfather was often absent, traveling across West Africa, attending conferences, helping establish churches and Christian radio stations, consulting on sanitation and water systems. At home, he could be difficult, getting into shouting matches with his wife or sinking into silences that lasted for days but he was different with rachel squatting beside her when he spoke carrying her through the blinding afternoon on his shoulders taking her out nights to show her the stars teaching her basic hydraulics by the rain barrels how to harness gravity to control water she adored him when she turned thirteen he began to change in inexplicable ways he relinquished the idea of a ten thousand year old earth announcing to a shocked wife and granddaughter that he had emerged from a decade-long fever, that the earth was a billion years old and no single couple spawned the human race. There was no violation of a covenantal relationship with God, he said. No fall. You couldn't deny the suffering of the innocent. Suffering, he said, has been woven into the fabric of the universe from the beginning of time. Rachel's grandmother was furious over his break with Christianity. She said if he had planned on mulling over why the innocent suffer, they might as well have stayed Jews. The reassertion of science in the household seemed to have freed the social studies teacher in her. And when her husband was gone, she started sneaking Rachel out to eat Guinea Guinea Fall with Peace Corps volunteers in Tamalee. And giving her different kinds of books, histories of the missionary role in the slave trade and colonization of Africa, books that made Rachel wonder, although she never dared ask, if all she knew of her grandmother's life as a missionary had been a lie. At the same time as her grandfather was rejecting the literal interpretation of Adam and Eve, he was growing increasingly obsessed with purity, as if by this alone he might still call himself a religious man. Rachel had just hit puberty, and he began to treat her changing body as if it were a badly wired appliance that might at any moment burst into flames. One day, her grandfather left to look at a church he'd helped establish in Kumasi and didn't return for a month. When his wife demanded to know where he'd been, he replied that he'd gotten held up by business. They began to argue. Rachel went outside to bathe. On the way back across the courtyard, she wore a wax cloth tied under her armpits. Her grandfather was standing beside a rain barrel, a bowl in his hand, staring at her with an expression of fear and anger that was wholly new. "'Granddaddy,' she said." He reached down and filled the bowl with water. Then he said, You should know that men's animal drive for sex always wins in the end. Not African or Muslim men. All men. Lord knows you'll learn it soon enough wearing that. Back when Rachel still called her grandfather missing and not dead, she and Gabriel sat out talking in the school canteen. They were the only missionary kids at the high school. They'd arrived at the same time the previous year, and both were Americans, who had spent almost their entire lives in West Africa. Rachel considered their similarities a sign, where she dismissed their differences. Gabriel was black and she was white. He appeared to still be a Christian, while she was obviously not, as either minor or temporary. But despite their kinship and displacement, Gabriel seemed content at the school. He could be very serious, and this was how he listened to her now while she talked about Roger and her grandmother. She told him how they were openly dating, how they sat out nights on the patio smoking and drinking and listening to Voice of America. What would her grandfather say when he came back and found Roger there? Gabriel leaned in and quietly said, you could pray for guidance and release. I'll pray with you if you like. She wanted to say yes, but instead she told him the truth. As a child, she'd prayed for small things. Her prayers were sometimes answered, but when she'd invited Jesus into her heart, she found him otherwise occupied. By the time she was a teenager, she knew in some fundamental way she would never feel Christ's presence. The closest she had come was one day when she stood in the bush outside her town among the towering red termite hills, watching rain clouds gather in a massive sky. She sensed then that everything was infinitely bigger and more beautiful than she could comprehend and that she was part of that bigness. But even then, she knew it wasn't Jesus or the Holy Spirit or anything you could put a name to. It was just this huge hot wind blowing right through you as if you were an open door. Gabriel glanced down at his hands and then back at her, a look on his face that she thought must be longing, but when she leaned forward to kiss him, he quickly pulled away. What if you're no good for me, he said. I mean, you don't even go to church. She sat there stung, He raised a palm to the sky and she turned. A boy named Yuri was walking toward them. He was an embassy kid, the son of a Dutch diplomat and a Vietnamese novelist. It was rumored around school that Yuri's mother, the novelist, beat his father and that the family had been forced to transfer to West Africa after she had whipped him with a belt at a party for the president of Portugal. The few words he'd spoken to Rachel seemed to be for the sole purpose of clarifying that a girl who'd never been to Europe, who knew only English and Gonja, a language spoken in a small rectangle of the rural Muslim North, was not worth his time or interest. "'You ready?' Yuri said to Gabriel. Gabriel glanced at Rachel. "'Come on, man,' Yuri said. Gabriel stood up and told her, "'I'll see you around.'" He avoided her the rest of the day. The next morning, she slipped a note into his desk in an empty homeroom. I'm sorry I scared you off. You could pray with me if you like and do all kinds of other things, too. You'll see how good I am for you. She looked for him again that day and didn't find him. At home after school, she fell into a brief, uncomfortable sleep to the sound of her grandmother washing pots outside and dreamt that he came and said he wanted her. Then he clapped his hands. She woke to Roger standing in the doorway of her bedroom, smiling. You've a visitor, he said. I didn't catch his name. An Asian guy. Tall. In the living room, Yuri lounged on the couch as if he owned it, eyes closed, arms behind his head, long legs extended. Roger had followed her into the room and stood beside her, waiting for an introduction that Rachel didn't give. But Yuri was good with adults and soon had Roger sitting beside him, talking about his work trying to eradicate onconcerchiasis. It was a parasitic cause of blindness that was spread by black flies breeding in rivers. Roger talked about some of the problems dealing with government, local people, and pharmaceutical companies, and Yuri nodded along beside him as if he were well aware of the difficulties and couldn't agree more. Rachel stood watching them. It was the first time she had heard details of Roger's work, and she found it surprisingly interesting. She asked if this was the disease that drove people to suicide from itching. That's a glamorization, Roger said, looking pleased. You'd think they'd have a vaccine, Yuri said. He had never lived in the States, but he had an easy American drawl. You would, Roger said, or better spraying of breeding sites. It's the kind of thing that looks like it has a clear solution, but really there's a whole mess of incentives driving the disease. "'Sounds like an excuse,' Rachel said. "'Various aid organizations had come and gone in the town where she'd grown up. "'They were like parasites,' her grandfather had said, "'feeding off the town system, leaving only thirst and imbalance behind.' "'Rachel's grandmother called Roger into the kitchen, "'and he reluctantly excused himself. Yuri rearranged himself on the couch and gave her such an easy grin "'that she couldn't help but feel a little flattered. "'She sat down in a chair across from him. "'I've got a message for you,' he said.' "'Gabriel wants to see you. "'He's got something he needs to tell you. "'Gabriel's parents had a boat,' Yuri said. "'The whole family was packing it in for good, "'heading up the river, missionary style. "'He spoke slowly, as if he had been entrusted "'with the delivery of some precious, fragile thing. "'You must think I'm lying. Look at this.' "'He jumped his feet and dropped his pants. "'His briefs were stark and white, straight out of the package.' A long thin slash ran up his thigh. He wanted me to drive in and pick you up. I said I wouldn't, and he got all worked up and started waving around his tent stakes. Sliced me open. He looked grave and ridiculous with his pants around his knees, the cut on his thigh, pink and raw. She almost laughed. Pull up your pants, she said. He obeyed, doing up his belt. You know how Gabe gets. She didn't know. Come on, Rachel, Yuri said, hopeful, almost pleading. I'll take you to him. You won't regret it. It was enough to convince her. Anything would have been. Her grandmother had gone out with Roger, so Rachel left a note saying she was going for a ride with the friend Roger had met and would be back later that night. They climbed into Yuri's Land Rover and headed east out of Accra and then on to the Tema motorway, toward the Volta region and the border and the limestone hills where her grandfather's body had been found. At one point, she said... It's so different here than in the north. We'd be driving through bushfires right now. Smart people up there, Yuri said, burning their land. They're flushing out the grass cutters, Rachel said. Yuri interrupted her. I know. She glanced over at his profile. He seemed uninterested, even smug. This was the version of Yuri she had somehow failed to remember when he was in her living room. They drove in silence, the road and mountains falling into shadows as the sun set behind them. Yuri steered smoothly around goats, chickens, the occasional child, a man on a bicycle balancing a two-by-four on his head. They passed a church with a mural on its side of a yellow-haired Christ glowing, surrounded by African children. What would Gabriel say? How did a black American kid in Africa as a missionary feel about a white Christ? She remembered her grandfather coming into her room, loose and bright-eyed, one night when she was 10 or 11, and recounting the three ways you could tell Jesus was a Jew. He went into his father's line of work. He thought his mother was a virgin. His mother thought he was God. Now she wondered if her grandfather had been drinking. My grandfather died around here, she said. He was a minister. Yuri said he was sorry. They found his body in a cave near Hoho. He was with a prostitute, ironic, Yuri said, steering smoothly around a large pothole. Then he made a joke about the wilds of Africa where you had to go to a whore cave instead of a whorehouse. She could have hit him. Have you ever been to Elmina, she asked. The town? The slave fort? He shrugged and said he'd been to one of them. He didn't remember which. She said in Elmina visitors could sit in the chapel where the slave traders sat with their wives and families, right over the dungeon where they kept men and women and children chained to the wall. There's a grate so the people in church can hear everything. The crying, the beatings. They beat them during church, Yuri asked lightly. His flirting chilled her. She reached out and turned down the A.C. I'm not making you hot, he said with a grin. Fuck off, a dirty girl, he sounded approving. Later, when the sun had finally set behind them, Yuri checked the odometer and then leaned forward, searching for a turnoff in the darkness. Soon they pulled onto a dirt road with potholes the size of barrels. He put the vehicle into a four-wheel drive. "'I don't know how people get around in those tro he said. "'I can never go native like you and Gabe. "'How do you sleep without air conditioning?' "'She didn't answer. "'He said, "'Gabriel lies awake all night touching himself to Christ's brotherly love.' "'She tried to summon the image of Gabriel greeting her with his big, easy smile, "'coiling a rope by the river, washing down a deck. "'I thought you'd like that,' Yuri said, sounding hurt. "'He pulled into a clearing and stopped the car.' outside the night air felt like a sauna a bright moon lit the forest around them for this rachel was grateful yuri had the only flashlight the boat's over here he said she followed him reminding herself that she could walk down the road to a house and ask to sleep on the floor in the morning catch a ride with some ngo workers coming in from the east for a day of wine and italian food in accra this possibility followed her as they made their way down the path to the river where nothing was waiting for them, not Gabriel, not his parents, just a small boat with an outboard motor, a canopy over the steering wheel, and an empty deck. Somehow she was not surprised. Take off your shoes, Yuri said. She'd ridden in on her own fantasy and insolence, yet it was still there, this ache and pop in her jaw, the need to crack a stone in her teeth, bend the night to her will. She slipped off her shoes and stepped onto the boat, The deck was cool under her bare feet. Yuri climbed in behind her, pulled a key from his pocket, and turned on the ignition. The engine coughed a couple of times, roared awake, and they pulled into the river. She sat on a bench behind Yuri at the helm and watched the black water and shadow forest running along the banks. The roar of the boat was comforting, like the noise of a fan. Then Yuri pulled to a stop in the middle of the river and turned off the motor. He got out of the seat and sat down beside her on the bench, "'Hello,' he said, smug and expectant. "'She briefly considered trying to knock him into the water. "'How'd you get the cut?' she asked. "'A swede with a broken bottle, at a bar by your house. "'You're such a liar,' she said. "Ah," he said with a little smile, "'but wasn't that the fun of it?' "'Then he leaned in, placed his teeth on her neck "'and ran his tongue along her skin. "'Her heart dropped into her crotch, "'a sensation so startling it took her a moment "'to realize it was fear and not desire.' Stop, she said, moving down to the end of the bench. He slid down after her and touched her waist. She switched to the bench across from him. He seemed genuinely shocked. Come on, he said. Come on, what? I read your note. He sounded as if his feelings had been hurt. I know what you want. Gabriel's waiting popped into her head, but Gabriel was gone. Maybe she thought for good. Or maybe he would be at school on Monday, and maybe she wouldn't. Yuri patted the seat between them as if she were a dog he was coaxing onto the couch. She shook her head. What the hell? His outrage was swift and shocking. You can't change your mind now. You know how much work I put into this? For the second time that day, he unzipped his pants. Anger filled her, so high and clear it could have been grace. This was what she had come for, this anger. I know how you got that cut, she said. I heard your mother beats the shit out of your father, that he's asking for it. He said at least he had parents, you little bitch. And she said she'd rather not have parents than his parents, who are both little bitches. She said, go fuck yourself, you son of two little bitches. He was still for a moment, and then he lunged at her. She scrambled up and over the rail and dove into the black water. The river closed around her, filling her mouth and nose and clothes. She headed in the direction that she thought was sure— Finally, she surfaced and rolled back to look at the boat. Yuri was kneeling on the bench, his hands on the rail. Jesus Christ, Rachel, he shouted, There are crocs in there! She broke into a crawl, her shirt ballooning around her. Behind her, the boat's motor roared awake, but before he could reach her, she was out of the water and into the woods, running painfully in her bare feet. Soon she reached the road they had driven in on, where Yuri would soon be driving, searching for her in the shadows. She kept her eyes on the ground, avoiding stones, trying not to think about hookworms burrowing into her feet or all the things she could have caught swimming in an unknown river. Schist of from the river snails, river blindness. Further down the road, she found a shack set back in the trees, an old wooden structure the size of a small latrine. Inside, she sat down in the far corner, leaned her head against the spongy wall, and closed her eyes. Insects hummed and clicked around her head, blood pounded in her ears. Soon, Yuri would be rolling through the night in his massive car. She would wait for him to be gone and then walk down the road until she found somewhere with a phone, a ride home. And tomorrow, when she was dry and clear thinking, she would get a shovel, a pickaxe, a pair of scissors, and dismember him at the embassy gates. She closed her eyes and tried to breathe. In the hours that came, she heard two cars on the road but didn't know if Yuri had gone. A cockroach hit the wall above her head and dropped into her lap. She brushed it away, shifting to stand up, but a slight movement by the door stopped her. A dark hose lay coiled between her and the door. It raised its head. Not a hose, but a snake. Thin, black, and flat-headed, its silver underbelly glowing faintly in the light. A black mamba. It opened its mouth and hissed rachel held her breath and eased her head back against the wall there she waited the snake stayed resting with its head tucked out of sight her body ached the left side of her face went numb the snake slept and along with it the world gabriel on a thin mattress on a floor yuri maybe having rolled through the silent electronic gates asleep now in his bed with the imported sheets in the big walled house that from the outside could have been any embassy house, elegant and fortressed. All over Ghana people slept in beds, on mats under trees, in mansions and houses and shacks, on beaches, the bones of the dead sleeping now in their graves, her grandfather's bones among them. Her grandfather had followed some woman up the path, past the goats and old men, into the mountains, entering the cave on his hands and knees into darkness. She didn't know what drove him there to pay for sex with a stranger, but she could imagine now that it was a non decision, a series of events that led you somewhere, that gave you schisto or river blindness, or trapped you in a shack with a snake. And then she was a child again, watching her grandfather sleeping on the mat in the shade, waiting for that moment when he opened his eyes and saw her, when he lifted his great lion head and said, with a gruffness that barely contained his joy. You've been watching me this whole time? She no longer had to forgive him all those estranged days that came after the days he hadn't known or seen her. The grandfather she had loved was with her, loving her back with his big aching love, telling her that even the stranger he had become would not have wished for her to suffer this. She didn't know how long she stayed there waiting to be freed, praying to the childhood Christ, the one who had never walked beside her mosquitoes fed on her neck, her clothes soaked through and stuck to her skin. The morning came slowly, the dusky gray of dawn seeping into the shack, exposing the rotting floors and walls and the snake. The marching band racket of birds began, all drums and whistles. The snake uncoiled and slid out the door. Rachel would spend the following twelve hours getting home, by foot and car and trotro. On Monday she would return to school with her grandmother and Roger in tow, where they would meet with a school counselor who would tell her to let it go and focus on getting into college. Her grandmother, turning out to have even less stomach for involving herself than Rachel had imagined, would agree, leaving only Roger to insist that the boy should be punished, expelled, prosecuted. Roger, in all his eagerness and shame that he had not caught on to Yuri when he'd had the chance, now her self-appointed avenger. But there in the shack, Rachel could imagine none of this. She pushed herself off the floor. She was bone tired, shot through with a dampness that was already swelling into a great sloshing discontent. And the unmistakable desire, there was no other way to describe it, to sharpen her teeth on somebody. And it would be a long time coming before she lost that particular urge.
0: Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for appearing on (laughs) Off the Page.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you have all these different elements um, in the story. You have the missionary um, life in Africa. You have issues of religion, of of race relations, and then this sort of central episode of like male sexual violence. Right. Is is it difficult in the crafting of the story to sort of figure out how all those things fit together, or what? or what connections yeah. to sort of forged between them.
1: I think that it's, I mean, it's interesting because I wrote the story, the initial draft of the story I wrote so many years ago, and I've since revised it over the years, and I feel like this last, I revised it once before I'd finished my novel, which is set in Chicago and is about race, sexual assault, and religion, um, and politics. And then I just revised it again for this, um, for this reading, and there... It's interesting to see how, like, kind of the core kernels of the story are the same. Like, the connections to me feel very instinctive, but my contextual understanding has changed, which I'm really grateful for. And I think that in some ways it's hard to write these kind of—you could write—you know, having lived in complicated situations with, like, intersectional identities and where people—you know, where you're you're in a position of privilege but also feel— endangered or put it, you know, whatever it is like this, you know, I think to put a character in a complex situation with all these different factors that are pressures on them, you could do that just by being present for the character in that moment based on what you know. But then the revision process, you really do have to learn to contextualize your work and really understand like kind of where your blind spots are. So I think like, for instance, I feel like slavery showed up in the very first draft of the story because you can't travel to you know, West Africa or to Ghana and visit these slave castles without just you know, without kind of being crushed by the by the enormity and brutality of it once again, <laughs> you know. Um, but I feel like at the same time, through the revision process and reading, it's like I for instance, I don't think that Rachel's you know, Rachel's a white girl who's a missionary in West Africa, you know, and I feel like that from the beginning I felt like that was like an a complicated and maybe distasteful or morally problematic position to be in, but I feel like I was better able to contextualize it later, you know? So I feel like there's, like, kind of a give and take between being in your character and really understanding, like, what your character would feel and where they came from and who, you know, what the pressures are on them in that moment and trying to really stay true to that and then, like, kind of taking a step back and being like, okay, like, where am I, like, where is my character unable to see who she is and where she came from and what the consequences are and where does that kind of overlap with my own um, lack of context or my own prejudices.
0: Well, um, maybe I should just then jump to a question that I was planning to ask later, but it feels like a natural transition. Um, Do you feel um, in your own work an obligation to, in some way, process or reflect the dumpster fire <laughs> that that we live in because of yeah. I've read I've read other um, of your stories and yeah. and you you do take on this material that's not often um, depicted in literary fiction, about um, drone strikes yeah. and about um, race. and is is that something that you feel compelled to do in your work?
1: Yes, I feel incredibly compelled to, and I feel this huge responsibility, but the last week it has become incredibly clear to me that fiction is not going to fiction is not the equivalent of direct action. And I feel like I'm starting to see how I could incorporate more activism in my life and maybe and I would still feel that responsibility in my fiction. But it would also free me up in a sense, too, for because I feel like I'm constantly fighting. Like, I feel so responsible. I end up writing crap that just can't be in a story because it's like because it's like shrill and it's like me processing my emotion and it's not in service of the story and then I have to edit it out, and that's one reason my novel took me ten years was I feel like I was feel, felt that in this like intense sense of obligation in my work that in some ways ended up you know kind of dragging me. It meant I didn't get where the the book didn't get where it needed to go as quickly as it could have, and so I do feel that obligation I'm starting to um realize that I think that we all have responsibility to be politically active, which I am already, but that that is not the same as writing fiction um actually, I heard uh boots Riley was here recently at City Arts and Lectures, and he talked about going back and forth between his music and activism and how when he was doing music, it was feeding his soul and, like, expanding kind of space in the world. And then he would get to a point where he was like, I've been too negligent for too long. I need." It's like music is not activism. Music is music. It's art-making. It has a really essential place in the culture, but it's not going to get us where we need to go just by itself. And then he would stop and be an activist for a while, and then when he kind of ran out of steam or just got burnout or too despairing as an activist, he'd go back to music. And I feel like that's like, I do feel a sense of responsibility in my fiction, but I'm also starting to see that there are other avenues which are more effective when it comes to really oppressive government actions. So the answer is yes, but I'm starting to see that, you know, I could also maybe free up some space in my fiction by just also dedicating more time to being active.
0: It's funny. I had a student this past quarter who I think was not maybe fully persuaded of like, the merits of creative writing in yeah. the first place, and she made the argument because, as a as a teacher, I was I was arguing for specificity and concrete yeah. detail, and 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 the, what we assume are like the building blocks of a story. And she said, "But you know, the uh, the single story is really manipulative, right? Because you can find right. a story, a story to mm-hmm. suit." any ideological yes. purpose I just
1: make that? Argument. so i'm like okay yeah. how do
0: i square that with what i think yeah. are the actual necessities for right. a story right that's that's, yeah. that's that's the added challenge of fiction yeah. versus creative non-fiction right because because telling the truth is a m- more fraught concept in fiction we're, we're hoping to tell like a like an emotional truth or a, a deeper human truth right. but we might be well, we are literally lying, at least partially, and right. making things up, right. and inevitably writing—whether it's a POV character or not—inevitably we're going to write characters that are, you know, across lines of privilege. Right, from right, our own.
1: right, right, um, right, right. Yeah, that's another
0: topic. Of no, the conversation. no, no. That's really
1: interesting. I, um, I'm trying to. I have to remember, you said at the beginning we're essentially lying, right? Oh, no, I was just going to say, and I think it's really interesting because fiction is lying and and we're responsible for the choices we make in stories in a way that you are not responsible in nonfiction, which I think is, you know, I mean, you're responsible for what you publish in nonfiction and the depictions of the characters, but their choices, you know, you can't change, you know, the race of your protagonist in nonfiction, whereas in fiction you're making those stories. And so I do think it's interesting because you could look at the type of lies they're not, you know, the type of fictions that writers choose to tell. And you can see kind of how they reflect back on their own biases and on the culture. And so I do think there's that added layer of responsibility that you just can't escape in fiction. And that, you you know, that's one of the great reasons to have just to be always like paying attention, I think, to the world and learning and reading and trying to expand, you know, your own narrow mindset. To ask, oh, yeah.
0: um, what role does research play? In your writing or in the writing of this story in yeah. particular, because it seems like, you know, a lot of stuff about <laughs> yeah. politics, about religion, yeah. just about the world. And I wonder, like, does that does the research lead to writing fiction or does fiction lead right. you to seek out answers?
1: Fiction leads wise. Well, I read like, yeah, I read a lot of um, like academic uh Stuff because it interest like something about the dry tone of academia puts me to sleep nicely first of all um and also just like interests me to you know these they write people write these like stories that are sorry they write these papers around like really horrifying questions like how do you define eagle and which evil and which was more brutal um the you know the gulags or the holocaust, but everything's in this like very distant academic tone, which I find both very upsetting and slightly just interesting. I would like to do less research, but I feel this sense of responsibility. You know, even writing about Hyde Park in Chicago, where I grew up, I feel this sense of responsibility to history. I was alive at that time, but I was, you know, I'm writing about a time where I was like 10 years old or something. And I, 12 years old and also a couple of years before I was born. And I felt this incredible sense of responsibility to get the details right. So yeah, I do a lot of research. I had, I have a fantasy that my next novel is going to be, um, totally research flip free
0: speculative fiction
1: speculative fiction right it was going yeah but it's so far it's not working out so
0: <laughs> you said you um worked on river blindness over the course of a decade off Yeah, and on. I
1: think it was, I think we're at the point now it's almost two decades.
0: <laughs> is that, um, is that a normal timeline? No, or... not at all. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a Deborah Eisenberg timeline. I know,
1: it really does. Well, I will say that I feel like I've grown, I mean, I think everybody continues to grow as a writer, but I have grown the time, when I drafted this story, it was like my first breakthrough story, in a sense, where I, I've been writing very whimsical, like, I'll never show anybody, but, like, you know, like, Terry Gross interviews the frog in the princess and the frog, and he's, like, super pissed because the um, princess, like, I don't know, lied about everything, was actually dating, like, a lifeguard from Long Island. Like, I was writing very, like, (laughs) whimsical crap that I was very proud of. Everything, you know, and I feel like River Blindness was the first story where I managed to take on some of those kind of questions, underlying questions, that I was trying to get at whimsically and could never quite reach. Like it was the first story where I took it on directly in a more realistic setting. And I think part of what allowed me to do that was it was set like I wasn't, you know, set in West Africa where I wasn't anymore. And so this is one of my earliest stories. And thus, I feel like I've improved so much since then. And for whatever reason, it was published much later than when I initially wrote it. And so I did all these revisions on it. And then it was published four years ago. And since then I've or three, four years ago. Since then, I've finished my novel, and so I'm still, you know, so I went back to it and, of course, felt like I'd improved a lot and did a bunch of, you know, smaller line edits. So I feel like I've grown a lot in the last couple of decades as a writer, and maybe I'll continue to grow on a sentence level, but in some ways, I imagine I'm not going to, you know, there's, like, I'm, you know, I'll just change. It's not going to be quite the, that level of, of growth, you know?
0: And did the the narrative change a lot from no The the narrative
1: has stayed entirely the same my problem is i can never do beginnings
0: because something that is a little surprising about the story is it begins with this death but um i feel like i see that there is this connection to the grandfather because um one of the things that she learns in this experience is about these like non-decisions or about how people's lives can just sort of go in, like, unforeseen, right, dangerous right, directions. Right. Um, and that she kind of has... A, she has this closeness to her grandfather that comes about after long after he's gone, yeah. and after he's died. Yeah. Um, was that was that always sort of, like, a destination you had in mind I for her? I think it
1: was. I feel like that... I mean, the ending has been very similar for years, in a way. And I feel like it was... I was pushing towards... I mean, I think the thing I was initially pushing against emotionally is that... Um, is her that feeling that there's something in her that she needs to get out. So she's putting herself, and I'm not blaming her. I mean, obviously, Yuri's the problem here, you know? But she has this, she's putting herself, like, she can't deal. She doesn't know how to deal with this. So she's putting herself in situations that force her into her emotion in a way. And I feel like the story was always pushing emotionally towards her trying to understand what the hell did, it, who was her grandfather? Like, who was this person who raised her? who loved her, who then kind of turned on her when she came into her sexuality, that was the thing that I was pushing her towards was just that feeling of trying to account for it. And then in the end she gets there, which I think I got there also as a writer, and I arrived there and discovered you can't really account for people. There's some actions you just can't account for, you know, or you could, but she can't at sixteen years old, you know? And so I feel like that that was kind of there from the beginning.
0: Thank you so much Sarah. Thank it's been you, a great Mark. conversation. This
1: is awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here.
0: Absolutely. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack. Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablaza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.